Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. This is a show where we seek to equip you with biblical clarity to live in our chaotic world. And in this episode, I'm excited to bring you a conversation with a great guest, Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. Uh, Dr. Beisner is an academic and he is uh, the founder and the national spokesman for an organization called the Cornwall Alliance. The Cornwall Alliance is a fellowship of uh, scholars and academics from a wide variety of disciplines and fields who all come together to contribute their work and expertise in the form of articles for the website, uh, academic resources, but also uh, for uh, testimony to be used before national committees and international committees on a variety of issues, but primarily what they work with is the area of uh, creation care or creation stewardship, uh, global poverty, and how to uh, address that, uh, and then also pro-life issues. And in this episode, I had the privilege of getting to have a conversation with Dr. Beisner on several of these topics. We talked about uh, social justice and where uh, that might uh, come into uh, contradiction with biblical justice. We talked about that. We talked also talked about uh, the pro-life movement, and specifically what we talked about is a specific movement called the pro-life evangelicals for Biden. This is a group that says that if you are truly pro-life, then you will vote for candidates who are expressly uh, pro-choice. If that sounds confusing to you, well then in this episode we explain that and Dr. Beisner uh, provides a critique in response to the argument by groups such as this. And so this is a really great conversation. I can't wait for you to uh, to watch it or listen to it, however you're doing that in this episode. Let me encourage you to check out our show notes where I'll have highlights and resources related to uh, anything we talk about in this episode, uh, especially be on the lookout for some resources that Dr. Beisner is going to be uh, providing to our listeners and guests. And so that'll be included in the episode and also in our show notes. So thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. You're listening to Filter. Dr. Beisner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah, really glad that you made the time to talk to us today and have uh, a, a good conversation, a great conversation on important topics. But before we get into any of those topics, I was just wanting to let you share your story with us. Tell us about uh, where you're from. Tell us about your testimony, how you became a Christian. Uh, and there's a little bit of your background. I was reading on the Cornwall Alliance uh, earlier, your bio, and you have a really interesting bio and stories. So I'm excited for us to hear a little bit of that. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, it would take a long time to give much background. Uh, I often playfully just tell people who ask me, well, so where'd you come from? I say, well, the mind of God, ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> and that, <laughs> that can distract a little bit. Uh, but uh, rather than try to repeat all that's in that bio on the Cornwall Alliance website under uh, the, the uh, uh, About Us tab, who we are. Um, let me just say this, that uh, uh, I, I was born to uh, non-Christian parents. Um, I would call them God-fearing Gentiles. And a uh, year after I was born, we moved to Calcutta, India, where my father was with the U.S. State Department. And while we were there, my mother contracted a disease that actually paralyzed her. And uh, my father uh, who had waited 13 years to have a son, uh, actually prayed to God. He didn't really know the Lord uh, through Jesus, but he prayed, God, you can take my son if you'll just give me back my wife. Uh, by which he meant I could die. <laughs> and uh, he would be satisfied if his wife recovered. Well, after six months of paralysis, uh, with no explanation, she did recover. It took a long time for all of her muscles to regain their strength, but uh, she ultimately lived to be almost 93 years old, was very active all her life. And about, uh, well, let's see, about 10 years later, 11 years later, uh, my, uh, my father and I both became Christians at a Billy Graham crusade in Southern California. Mm. And after that, clearly the Lord just uh, took me into uh, service uh, to him in personal evangelism, sharing the gospel with others and in apologetics to, uh, to support that evangelism. 
And uh, then from there, uh, I, I went to University of Southern California, studied philosophy under the, the great Christian philosopher, Dallas Willard, who had a huge impact on my life. And uh, uh, then began in the early 1980s, uh, to read books on how Christians should be uh, relating to the poor, what, what should be our concerns, and how can we help the poor. And that led to my ultimately doing a master's in economic ethics, to my writing a, uh, an introductory textbook on economics from a biblical perspective called Prosperity and Poverty, the Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity. That was for Crossway Books' Turning Point Christian Worldview series. And the series editor, Marvin Lasky, had wanted me to do a chapter in that book on the relationship of population resources, the environment, pollution, things like that. And as I was working on that, I just said, hey, Marvin, uh, Marvin Lasky, by the way, is now the editor-in-chief of World Magazine. Uh, I said, Marvin, <laughs> that can't be done in a chapter. And he said, well, do a second book just on that then, which I did. Uh, and Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population Resources in the Future, uh, followed up Prosperity and Poverty. Those things resulted in my just sort of gaining a reputation as a, a scholar who did a lot on uh, biblical earth stewardship, on uh, creation care, things like that. And eventually, <laughs> through a, a circuitous route, that led uh, to both my uh, being asked to teach at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, the College of the Presbyterian Church in America, and then at Knox Theological Seminary under Dr. D. James Kennedy in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I taught at each of those places for eight years, and particularly at Knox, taught on ethics as well as systematic theology, church history, historical theology, and apologetics. And uh, then in uh, 2005, um, I was involved in starting this little organization called the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. We initially started with a different name and then found that that was similar to another group's name. So we changed in 2007 to the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And we're a, a network of just under 70 evangelical Christian scholars, uh, about a third are natural scientists, uh, you know, physicists, chemists, uh, mathematicians, uh, statisticians, climate scientists, some of the world's top climate scientists, in fact, uh, you name it, uh, biologists and so on. About a third are economists and policy wonks, especially those who specialize in either environmental economics or developmental economics, uh, how societies grow and stay out of poverty. And then another third are theologians, philosophers, and the like. And I, I have the fun of getting to work with all those people with all those different perspectives and insights and combine them all. Uh, and we, we have three purposes, really, uh, three missions to educate the, the public and policymakers on biblical earth stewardship. That is how we can work to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. Second is economic development, especially for the very poor. We're not talking about uh, people in uh, the United States. Typically, we're talking about people in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia, Latin America, Oceania. Uh, what is it that lifts and keeps whole societies out of poverty? And uh, uh, we're convinced that uh, there are two things, particularly uh, a set of social institutions. Those would be private property rights, entrepreneurship, free trade, limited government, the rule of law. And then second, uh, a material uh, criterion or a material condition is access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy because uh, energy goes into everything that we do, producing food, clothing, shelter, healthcare, education, communication, transportation, everything that we do takes energy. And the more energy you can apply, the more you can get done, uh, the more you can lift people out of poverty. And unfortunately, a lot of the environmental movement uh, tends to reject those very five social institutions, or at least to severely limit them, uh, and also uh, favors energy policy that moves us away from the most abundant, affordable, reliable energy sources toward sources that are diffuse, uh, uh, very expensive, and very unreliable because they're, uh, by nature, they're intermittent, uh, wind and solar. 
-hmm. And so we see the importance of, of uh, addressing together economic development for the poor and biblical earth stewardship, lest either one uh, be sacrificed on the altar of the other, so to speak. So that's kind of what we do. And um, uh, one of the major concerns that I've had as, uh, as a professor of ethics and as, as discussing economic justice, uh, justice in economic relationships uh, in my books on that subject, uh, uh, has been the meaning of justice. What, uh, what really is justice? And uh, I define that in a booklet that I've written called uh, social justice versus biblical justice, how good intentions undermine justice and gospel. Mm -hmm. I define justice based on the usage of the term in, in the Bible as rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in conformity with the moral standards of God's law. Uh, so that means you don't play favorites, impartiality, and the rewards and punishment fit the behavior, uh, that's proportionality. And uh, it is what is due, what someone has earned. Uh, and that means that it's, it's distinguished from grace. Grace is benefit where we've earned the opposite. <laughs> and justice means we get what we deserve. And, you know, if I were to pray for anything from God toward me, I would not pray for God's justice toward me. Mm. I'd be in hell uh, <laughs> because I'm a sinner. But instead, I thank him for his grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who, uh, who gave his life for me, that uh, I might receive his righteousness uh, credited to my account, so that the Father can say of me, uh, you're not guilty. Mm -hmm. And that's not because I'm not a sinner. It's because I've received the gift of Christ's righteousness. Uh, this, uh, this has... has uh, uh, this concern about justice has bled over into many other issues because certainly it's central to our lives. Micah 6, 6, 8 is one of my favorite verses. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, and right now uh, we, we face a growing sort of woke progressive movement that I think has has uh, redefined justice in a way that makes it quite the opposite of justice. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes an excuse for embracing uh, sometimes uh, political perspectives that are anything but just. And the, so, you know, there, there we go. I, I, I've kind of led up to the, the uh, subject for which you invited me onto the program and I'll let you take it from there. Excellent. Yeah, well, that's good. I, I love hearing all that. And, um, and it, that is a good segue to our topics for today. Um, before we get directly into the topic though, since we, you did go ahead and start talking about justice and how um, there's a lot of Christians today who are moving towards a very, uh, as the term, you know, uh, as the primary term has become woke, a very yeah. woke view of justice, a very woke Christianity, as they say, uh, a very woke approach to politics. What is the problem in the majority of Christians who are, who are now leaning and tending towards wokeness? What is the problem with their definition or understanding of justice that is causing them to then lean that way? Uh, yeah. What do you think? Well, social justice, um, if all that meant were simply that justice should be done to everybody, <laughs> right? I, I owe everyone justice. Uh, I should not steal anybody's property. I shouldn't, uh, you know, assault and batter or kill anybody. I shouldn't hate anybody and so on. If that's all social justice meant, that would be great. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's perfectly fine. But as you look at the history of the term running back actually a couple of centuries but particularly as a part of the progressive movement, uh, social justice tends to mean the pursuit of equality or at least uh, pretty close to equality of outcome in people's wealth, in their positions in society and, and uh, all the roles that they play and so on. And the problem with that is that because people do differ, 
<laughs> and they differ wonderfully in terms of their aptitudes, their likes and dislikes, their personal backgrounds, family backgrounds, all of these different things. Uh, these, are th these are the things that make life really interesting. I mean, it, Oh, God help us if all the, all the world were clones of me. That would be horrifically boring, <laughs> uh, as well as probably very poor because I'm not particularly great at growing food or anything else like that. Uh, but because people differ so much in what they like to do and what they're skilled to do and what their backgrounds have prepared them to do, uh, they cannot have equal outcomes or even closely comparable outcomes and it's really good that they don't because otherwise uh, we would lack all of the differentiation uh, that allows us to specialize in things where we produce really well and to trade our excess, uh, our surplus in those things with others who specialize in the things that they do really well. The result is all of us are better off. But this pursuit of equality of outcomes can really only be served then by violating uh, one of the basic principles of justice in the Bible, and that is the principle of impartiality. You don't play favorites. All the rules are supposed to apply to all people equally. That's true justice. But in order to try to push toward equal outcomes, you have to apply some rules to some people and other rules to other people, and you have to play favorites. Uh, that inevitably results in restricting people's freedom of action and freedom of choice. Uh, so that's a part of it. And you know, some people will say, okay, but uh, all right, we're not looking for equal outcomes. What we're looking for is equal opportunities. Well, the problem with equal opportunity is that that too is, uh, is, is a myth. It's a chimera. Um, there is no such thing. Uh, our opportunities differ based on uh, our, our genetic makeup, based on uh, the kinds of parents who raise us, whether we have one parent or two parents, uh, the, the values that those parents have, if they are uh, if, if they're folks who are drug abusers uh, and don't value self-discipline and hard work and saving and producing and, and so on, we are not going to, going to grow up with the same kind of instruction that we would with the opposite of the sort of parents. Mm -hmm. The time we're born, the place we're born, all of these things uh, mean that we have different opportunities. And you cannot equalize opportunities without playing favorites any more than you can equalize outcomes without playing favorites. So that whole understanding of justice, I think is, is quite contrary to the biblical understanding. When we believe that all men are created equal as the Declaration of Independence puts it, what we mean is not that they're equal in height or eye color or, or even in IQ or mm -hmm. anything of that sort. What we mean is that they're all equally image, bear image bearers of God, and therefore they are due our respect of their life, of their liberty, of their, uh, of their property, of their own pursuits of happiness, and so on. We should, we should consider all human life sacred and, and sanctify it, uh, you know, set it aside as, as uh, special uh, from, from conception, until natural death. And uh, sad to say, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the progressive movement doesn't see that at all, doesn't recognize that, uh, that this respect for human life should go to all human life, no matter whether it's born or pre-born, no matter, matter whether it is uh, you know, black or white or yellow or red or uh, elderly or handicapped or male or female. Uh, all of us should respect each other as human beings made in the image of God. Absolutely. So I just finished reading recently uh, Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. Mm -hmm. And while I found a lot of things interesting and compelling, uh, more towards the second half of the book, in the first half, in the first few chapters, whenever he was trying to define uh, justice and give a biblical definition of justice, that's where I found myself a little bit more uh, uneasy. And, yeah. uh, and, and I'm, I'm noticing some difference in, in your articulation of justice as compared to 
just reading his. And I think one of the things that bothered me as I read, like I said, I, I found there to be a, a visceral difference in reading the first half of the book and the second half, because the second half was much more uh, specific in uh, terms of how do we uh, address issues of justice, of poverty, uh, injustice, and so on, versus the first half where the definition was, was quite murky. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I think what really concerned me, it took me a while of, of processing it to come here, but I think what really concerned me was that there was, uh, in the definition that he provided, there was no limiting principle to what is appropriate for the state to do for there's no limiting principle for state intervention into the issues of society where the state might or might not should be involved and i think you saw this uh, manifested in that uh, viral post that he had on facebook um what, what was it a month or two ago where he said you know we need to maintain liberty of conscience for christians whenever it comes to political views and so it can be uh, so a, a Bible believing Christian can faithfully believe in small government, no intervention from the government and so on conservative principles, while a Bible believing Christian can appropriately believe in big government, big government programs, high intervention into society, mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, it essentially justifying how uh, justifying a Christian choosing to vote for any kind of leftist Uh, very progressive or woke policies. And then I, and so I saw, since I just read that book, I saw a direct line from this very vague uh, definition of justice that gave no limiting principle to the role of the state. And then that viral post. What what, what would you say is the difference between your definition and his? And I think his being representative of a lot of Christians who are starting to tend more towards the the left-leaning yeah. or progressive side. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I read A Generous Justice a couple of years ago and felt very much the way you've just described as I read it, uh, thinking to myself, uh, I, I really don't think, uh, based on what I was reading there, that Keller had really grappled carefully with the, the more intricate details of how the Bible talks about justice. Um, for example, uh, and I talk about this in my book, uh, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice, the Bible says a, a lot about doing justice for the poor. And so people will, will see that and they will think, ah, there, see, justice has to come to the aid of the poor. And it, in fact, it, will, it must even favor the poor. And yet, biblical texts tell us, for instance, in uh, Exodus 23, uh, you shall not favor the poor in his dispute, uh, neither shall you favor the, ri- uh, the rich in their dispute. I mean, those verses are like three verses apart in, in Exodus 23. Uh, we're not to show any favoritism whatsoever. And so then we have to ask, okay, so why is it that so frequently in the Bible, doing justice and helping the poor are associated with each other. And the answer to that is precisely that doing justice in the Bible is very frequently uh, raised as how those who are uh, ordained of God to enforce justice are to protect and vindicate and restore those who have been the victims of injustice. And precisely because the poor are weak in their poverty, they are more vulnerable to being treated uh, unjustly than are the wealthy or even the middle class, um, to the extent that there was much of a middle class in in, uh, ancient biblical culture. There really wasn't much of one. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the poor are more vulnerable, and therefore, because they are more frequently the targets of oppressive acts, injurious acts, injury to their persons, to their properties, to their relationships, to their reputations, and so on. Therefore, of course, you're going to have to come to their aid more frequently than to the aid of the rich. And that's not because you're playing favorites, it's because you are responding where injustice has been done. Uh, Now, I don't get 
the impression from reading Keller that he has really worked those issues through very carefully. I also don't get the impression from reading uh, Tim Keller that he has thought very carefully about the very nature of the state, of the civil government. Uh, one way of, of stating that nature is that it is, it is the, the legal monopoly of force. That is that uh, everything the state does, it does by force. And it has the legal uh, what uh, permission <laughs> to do that, or at least it can claim it. Now that doesn't mean that the state cannot abuse that. And very often states do abuse their legal monopoly of force. But if we recognize that, then we have to ask, so how do I know when a state has abused its legal monopoly of force? Are there standards about that? Well, and I go back to the Ten Commandments. Anytime the state violates any of the Ten Commandments, uh, and when it attempts to force others to violate the Ten Commandments, the state is abusing its legal monopoly of force. So, for example, the Eighth Commandment, uh, you shall not steal, does not say you shall not steal unless you are the government. Okay, I haven't found that in any variant readings of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Uh, that exception just isn't there. So if I, as a voter, go into the ballot box and I say to myself, I, I want to... I want to redistribute some wealth from these people over here who have it to these people over here who don't have it, uh, but I'm not willing to break into their homes or to, to uh, hack their bank accounts and take that money or that, uh, that property and give it over here myself. So I will vote for politicians who will vote for legislation that will do that. Mm -hmm. I am just as much involved in theft as if I had done it myself. Uh, so I, I don't get the impression that Tim Keller has really thought that through very carefully. And I, I think part of why is actually something admirable. <laughs> it is that he's driven by generosity. <laughs> the, the root of, of, of one word of his title, mm -hmm. a generous justice. He wants to be generous to people. He's driven by compassion. He sees people suffering. He wants them to be helped. And he says, okay, let's look for every way we can possibly help these people, right? That motivation is great, but one of the you know, one of the queens of the proverbs, so to so to speak, is and not the proverbs in the Bible, but proverbs common to Western civilization anyway, mm -hmm. is hell is paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. And what's really crucial is that when we are driven by the passion of compassion, we have to step back and set the passion aside for a minute while we very carefully examine two things. One, the in principle rightness or wrongness of a solution that we've thought of to somebody's need. And two, the actual consequences of adopting that solution. Mm. And so yeah. unfortunately, a lot of us as Christians are really good at compassion but we're not good at dispassion, at that careful analysis of the principles and the consequences. Uh, one of the most brilliant statements I've ever read anywhere is in an end note in Walter Williams's book, The State Against Blacks. Williams is a, a very prominent black economist. And in that book, he demonstrated how the actual consequences of every single federal policy adopted for the purpose of helping blacks in America from the 1960s through the early 1980s had the opposite consequences of what the supporters said they intended to do. Mm. Uh, and so in, in an end note, Williams says, truly compassionate policy requires dispassionate analysis. I think that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, too many of us as Christians feel the compassion and we don't step back to do the dispassionate analysis. Yeah. I also find, you know, going back to what you said about 
uh, not being willing to do the stealing ourselves, but voting for a politician who would do it on our behalf. Yeah. It, it takes me back to uh, any time that I see someone talking about justice or uh, how should Christians think about politics and so on today, I find a notable lack of First Samuel 8, whenever Samuel warns yes. people about what a king would do. Yeah, and I just right. I find it concerning that we never take First Samuel 8 into account when we talk about uh, giving power to politicians, yeah. whether they be Republican or exactly. Democrat. Um, yeah, whatever battles we are wanting exactly. them to fight on our behalf, being very careful about what powers we give them. So I, I wanted to just go ahead and keep talking about justice for a little while, the confusion mm -hmm. of justice and so on among Christians today, because I, I thought it would lead well into what was the proposed main topic for this conversation. Yeah which was the uh, emergence of this group, um, but really the group being representative more of a strain of thought that, that I've been seeing for mm -hmm. a while. I know you have too. Uh, the group being uh, evangelicals for Biden or uh, pro-life. Pro specifically pro-life evangelicals. Pro-life evangelicals yeah. for Biden. Yeah, uh, yeah. pro-life uh, for the Democrats or so on. But it, it comes from this argument that if one is truly pro-life, according to the biblical definition of the, the dignity of man, that uh, every human being is made in the image of God. Therefore, that means um, every unborn person. So there's the pro-life uh, appeal, but from every unborn person to every born person uh, through every age demographic, socioeconomic yep. demographic, ethnic demographic, that if we're pro-life, we are going to be pro-life to all of these demographics. And so... Mm -hmm. they criticize people who they say are single issue pro-life that they're only concerned about the well-being and life of the unborn person but not the rest and so if you are truly pro-life then you will support uh someone such as biden or other democratic candidates who want to provide uh broader health care and other yeah. justice initiatives to bring about human flourishing to all demographics um, right. right. If you want to rephrase or explain this this movement, uh, feel free to to just help our our right. audience understand it and then provide a critique. Yeah, back in early October, um, a uh, a group of of uh, self professed evangelicals led by uh, Richard Mao, the former the the president emeritus of Fuller Theological Seminary, and Ron Sider, the the uh, president emeritus of Evangelicals for Social Action, released a, a joint statement called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. And in that statement, they argued just as you have uh, summarized just now, and uh, they, they said really a consistently pro-life ethic is going to seek to promote human well-being across the board, not only in terms of opposition to abortion, now, there are several different ways that I would respond to that. Uh, first, quite simply, I don't know any anti-abortion pro-life people who couldn't care less about the poor, the sick, the oppressed, and so mm -hmm. on. I mean, uh, that's a straw man. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's just simply not out there. I mean, it, are there some? I suppose there might be, but it's going to be difficult to find them, right? Uh, so that itself is is uh, something that just misleads at the very start of the argument. Um, but they will insist that, uh, let's see, poverty, uh, lack of, of access to health care, uh, air pollution, water pollution, climate change, smoking, and racism are all pro-life issues, and they will put those on a level with abortion, with being opposed to abortion. Um, and I think there are three serious problems with that. Two of them are problems of failure to make very important ethical distinctions. And the other one is a linguistic problem, all right? Uh, we'll treat the linguistic one first. It's, it's fairly simple. Uh, all the standard dictionaries, look up the term pro-life. You will find that all of them define pro-life as a term with opposition to abortion. 
That's because good dictionary ed dictionary editors pay attention to how uh, how a word is used in the surrounding society, where it came from, how it how it was coined, and so on, and they reflect that in the definitions. The term pro-life was coined during the uh, movement uh, first to to uh, to try to prevent the spread of of loose. Uh, restrictions on abortion uh, in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, and then to, to uh, uh, protest and seek to reverse the ruling of the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade in 1973 that essentially removed all legal restrictions on abortion at all times from conception till birth in all 50 states. Uh, little by little, some state legislatures have been hacking away at that, and getting some restrictions uh, in, more often than not, those get overturned by courts depending upon Roe v. Wade. But at any rate, the term pro-life was coined to denote opposition to abortion. That's its standard definition in all the standard dictionaries. And I run those down in a, a, a booklet that I wrote called how the creation care movement threatens the pro-life movement because many creation care organizations were saying, oh, look, opposition to climate change, that's pro-life. Opposition to mercury emissions in, in coal-fired power station uh, function, that's pro-life. Opposition to air and water pollution, that's pro-life. Uh, opposition to, uh, you know, to, to biodiversity loss, that's pro-life. And what that does is it takes a term that has a specific referent and applies it extremely broadly. The result of that is to obscure the true meaning of the term and then to confuse a lot of people who think then, oh, okay, so I'm pro-life, I oppose abortion and these folks, they're pro-life too. So if I support their work, that's gonna help in the fight against abortion. Whereas in fact, they're, in fact, they're not doing anything against abortion. They're doing things on other issues that may very well be very good issues to do something about, mm -hmm. but people are confused. The result is a divided pro-life movement and, and uh, the, the weakening of the effort to elect officials who will uh, craft and adopt legislation or regulations that limit and ultimately we hope uh, criminalize uh, abortion in the United States. So that's the linguistic problem. It's frankly, it is, it's word theft. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I don't think it's a very respectable thing to do, especially after the people have been warned of it. And back in 2012, and again, a couple of years later, a variety of pro-life movement uh, leaders, real pro-life leaders, uh, joined in signing public statements that uh, that really uh, what uh, criticized and called for repentance on the part of those who were using the term that way. So that's the linguistic problem. The two ethical issues are, I think, much more serious, and that is that they fail to distinguish between intentional harm inflicted and unintentional harm inflicted on the one hand. And on the other hand, they fail to distinguish between death, which is the greatest harm we can do to another person and illness, uh, you know, some much lesser forms of harm. Now in abortion, every successful procedure intentionally kills an innocent human being. That's what abortion is all about. And you can identify a spe specific persons who have that intent, the mother and the doctor and all of the medical staff that work with the doctor to perform that abortion. Those persons intentionally kill an innocent human being. The Bible forbids that. And that is a very serious ethical issue. That is so serious that intentionally killing a, an innocent human being is the only sin, the only crime 
in the Bible for which the death penalty is the only penalty that is allowed, let alone prescribed. It is prescribed for, uh, for accidental killing, for negligent homicide, for stealing property, for assault and battery, for rape, for all kinds of other things. Biblical law prescribes various punishments, and in some instances, it prescribes capital punishment. But in all of those others, it allows a ransom to be given. But, but according to Numbers 35, no ransom can be given for premeditated murder. That's how serious murder is. That's how serious intentional killing of innocent human beings is. That's because it's the, so, the murder, murder is the greatest assault on the image of God and human beings. Exactly. Beyond exactly. any other threat to the image of God and humanity. As Genesis 9, 6 puts it, uh, whoso sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God made he him, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's the first ethical distinction that they're failing to make. Uh, the second one is the ethical distinction simply between death and lesser harm. Uh, it's not just that abortion intentionally kills, it's that abortion kills. Whereas poverty, uh, lack of adequate health care, uh, smoking, uh, racism, things like this, ordinarily, they don't uh, directly impose death on specific individuals. They may might make life more difficult uh, so that someone might die a little earlier than otherwise, but they don't actively kill. And that, by the way, brings up another uh, way of trying to explain the difference here. And that is that the word kill in grammar, we call that a transitive verb. It, it describes an action where a subject acts upon a direct object. If you can think back to your grammar school grammar mm -hmm. lessons, right? Mm -hmm. uh, sentences have a subject and often they'll have a direct object. And that transitive verb uh, expresses an action where the subject impinges upon a direct object. So uh, for me to say, uh, David shot the deer, right? shoot shot there is an in, is a transitive verb and it indicates action where david impinges upon the deer the deer is the direct object david is the subject now the word die is an intransitive verb it doesn't denote action that a subject impinges upon some other object right i, I can say i kill myself if i'm a suicide right that's a transitive verb. But if I simply say I die, that verb is not, in, uh, is not transitive, it's intransitive. It doesn't denote action uh, by a subject upon an object. So in, in abortion, identifiable people actually kill another human being. In poverty, people sometimes die because of poverty, lack of adequate food or of clean drinking water or of medical attention and so on. Uh, in racism, sometimes people will die because of that. Uh, now, in some instances, that's because a racist actually expresses violence. And then that's not just racism. That's murder, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? That's murder. Uh, but the fact that some people die from smoking doesn't mean that somebody has actively killed someone. The fact that some people might die as a result of air pollution doesn't mean that someone has killed someone. It means that an action that had, uh, excuse me, that had other consequences, such as providing energy that allows people to grow a lot of food and process it and distribute it and, and, and uh, get it into people's homes so that they can eat it, has some unwanted side effects that are harmful to health. Well, so does getting out of bed. I mean, literally a certain number of people every year die by falling as they get out of bed mm. <laughs> in, in the United States. Uh, there are all sorts of other things that have unintended, uh, sometimes fatal consequences. And we don't say that those are killing. We say that sometimes people die that way. 
So this statement by so-called pro-life evangelicals for Biden fails to make those very, very important ethical distinctions. And frankly, by the way, they're not, they're not all that complicated. They're not, they're not high fangled. That's the kind of thing that, frankly, you, you would <laughs> encounter in, in Ethics 101, Unit 1, <laughs> mm-hmm. in a, 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 a college or, or graduate school course in ethics. This is simple stuff. And it's really, I think, shocking that the people who have, have done this, uh, who presumably are, are you know, well-read Christian scholars, would fail to make those distinctions in their statement, pro-life evangelicals for Biden. Yeah, well, that's a really great explanation of the of their position and also the uh, the problems with it. And so, let's say that we have some viewers, listeners who are uh, who are agreeing with your critiques, and uh, and yet they still feel um, the need for a compassionate response, like we were talking about yeah. earlier. So on the one hand, they feel a very strong commitment to the pro-life cause, the specific pro-life cause, mm-hmm. as you, we were talking about. Um, and yet, on the other hand, they want to be uh, supportive of and, uh, and, and contributing to the agendas to, um, to, to forward other uh, yeah. good causes, you know, such as lifting people out of poverty, yeah. solving racism, you exactly. know, uh, reducing harmful pollution, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what is the alternative for them? Uh, if they were to, if they had a choice between a candidate who is pro-life, but then a candidate who is not pro-life, but supportive of some other good policy agendas, what, what is the a choice they should yeah. make if they don't vote for uh, the, the non-pro-life uh, candidate? Does that mean that they are against yeah lifting people out of poverty against ending racism and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is where the whole thing of, of folks saying you shouldn't be a single issue voter arises. And Mm -hmm. what I would say to that is that you're right. Nobody should be a single issue voter, but there are some issues that, uh, that strike more at the heart of what it is to be human and what it is to respect human life than other issues do. And because abortion, uh, legalized abortion means recognizing and sanctioning uh, positively by law, the intentional killing of innocent human beings, that is far more contrary to, to, respect for human life as made in the image of God than anything else that we can imagine. Uh, well, except for things like say the Holocaust, you know, where you just simply define a particular group of human beings as subhuman and therefore you can, you can uh, kill them at will. That's, that kind of thing has happened many times in human history. Uh, so we could imagine, okay, now we're going to make it legal for uh, for parents to just kill a child anytime till that child reaches 18, the point of legal uh, uh, independence in America, that too, we would say that should be a single issue. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. Or we can just kill elderly people because they are a burden on us. Uh, that too should be a single issue. Um, so those sorts of issues can rule out voting for some candidates, but they cannot by themselves, all by themselves, justify voting for some other candidate. Um, now, if I, if I know that there is one candidate who is pro-life in the proper sense of the term, anti-abortion, and who is in favor of all kinds of policies that are uh, very, very destructive of human life, in other ways and of human freedom and of the dignity of humanity in other ways, then I'm going to look for another candidate who's not only pro-life, but also embraces better policies in those other things. Mm-hmm. Part of what I have to remember is that, uh, <laughs> that in every election, 
in which Jesus and Satan are not the two <laughs> candidates on the ballot, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, in that election, it would be obvious. <laughs> you choose Jesus be because he is absolutely perfect, right? And yeah. you don't choose Satan because he is absolutely evil, right? Mm -hmm. But in every other choice, we're always faced with a choice between uh, candidates who fall somewhere on the continuum between absolute goodness, Jesus, and absolute evil, Satan, right? And mathematically, the better of those two goods, because every human being has some good about him or her just simply by being a human being, and uh, even people whose, whose policies on many issues I consider to be grotesquely wrong, have many good desires, and it's good to have good desires. So mathematically, the choice between the better of two goods and the worse of two goods is identical to the choice between the lesser of two evils and the greater of two evils. And so we cannot just say, oh, well, I refuse to vote for the lesser of two evils because I'm not going to vote for evil. Unless Jesus is on the ballot, my friend, you're going to vote for evil. You're also going to vote for good. And the question is, where do the different candidates fall on the spectrum from perfection to absolute evil? And then in addition, we have to remember that in voting, we're not voting just, especially the higher the office that's in question. I mean, if, if you're voting for dog catcher in your local uh, unincorporated community, uh, this probably doesn't come much into play. Mm -hmm. uh, but as you vote for people higher and higher in office, these are people who can affect policy, who can affect the choice of, of appointees to various other offices. So when you vote for president, for example, you're not voting just for one individual. You're voting for that individual, plus a running mate, plus a party platform, plus roughly 3,000 federal uh, political executive branch appointments that will be made within about the first 90 days after inauguration, plus a whole bunch of policy decisions, plus judicial appointments that will be made over the entire four years of this person's administration. All of that forms a package and sometimes we will vote for a package, even thinking that the person at the top of that package is not what we would most prefer to have, but is the price that we're willing to pay to have that package instead of the opposite package. Mm -hmm. So when I, as a, as a, uh, a Christian theologian, ethicist, and economist, look at the comparative policy bundles and likely appointment bundles uh, between uh, uh, President Trump and uh, Vice President Biden right now, I, I conclude that the policies and the likely appointments <clears throat> of a President Trump are likely to do far more good in terms of international relations, in terms of the welfare of the American people, the, the well-being of the American people, the economy and th things like that, as well as related to being pro-life, trying to limit abortion, than the policies and likely appointments that would be associated with Joe Biden and the Democratic Party platform, uh, who uh, and, and his running mate, Kamala Harris, they all support abortion uh, without legal limits from conception right up to birth and frankly, even a bit after birth. Um, <clears throat> and the, the economic policies that they support, I think rather than really helping the poor, harm the poor and keep them in poverty over long periods of time. Uh, that's something that one learns by studying economic history, by studying economic principles and things like that. And so there, if I may, I'd, I'd recommend my book, Prosperity and Poverty, The Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity, uh, for your viewers who, who are interested in following up on that. Yeah, so if I hear you right, what you're saying is, is that uh, a Christian is not committing the unforgivable sin if they vote for Donald Trump. 
Well, neither if they vote for Joe, Joe Biden, by the yeah. way. And you started off this particular segment by referring to those who say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, who, who say that a, uh, a Christian and evangelical can't vote for such and such a, a kind of candidate, right? Uh, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I think that a, a sincere, well-meaning uh, Christian can vote for either Donald Trump or Joe Biden, but sincerity and good intentions are not all that matter. What I think is that a well-informed, sincere, well-meaning, compassionate Christian, well-informed, cannot vote for Joe Biden because the policies that Biden supports economically, in terms of international relations, uh, and especially in terms of, of abortion, are policies that are going to be more harmful to more people. Uh, even on the racism uh, part of the spectrum, uh, back in August, Joe Biden tweeted, uh, affirming the, the notion that Michael Brown in Ferguson had been murdered by the police, uh, and had had you know he he perpetuated the hands up don't shoot myth. Now the Obama Justice Department under Black uh, 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 Attorney General, um, what was his name? Uh, Eric Holder. Uh, yeah, Eric Holder mm -hmm. investigated that that death very very carefully, and it concluded that hands up, don't shoot had never happened, that in fact, the officer in that case had total justification for believing that his own life was, was threatened by Michael Brown, and that therefore no criminal charges should be filed. Biden's tweet has helped to fan the flames of racial uh, conflict in America. And so the notion that somehow or other, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to improve racial relations, I think they would do exactly the opposite. And if we look at uh, President Trump's economic policies, what they did was they brought black unemployment in America, especially for black youths, to the lowest levels in history prior to the COVID uh, lockdowns and all of, uh, all of the, the harm they did to our economy. Uh, that I think is is a, a tremendously important thing to to notice. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate the perspective that you gave of uh, of it's not just about sincerity and compassion, but well informed. Uh, it's yeah. about right sincerity and compassion. And then also that, as you pointed out before, that we need to keep in mind whether someone is leaning towards a Trump presidency or towards a Biden presidency. Um, based off of whatever personality or character issues we need that we need to keep in mind that there is a gigantic bureaucratic package that comes along with each one of those right. candidates. Not, as yeah. you said, not just the federal employees, but the policies, the platforms of the parties that will be yeah. pushed forward by each one of those candidates. And so that's incredibly important for well-informed Christians to take in mind as they head to the ballot box. Uh, we're nearing the end of our time, and I wish we could keep going, and uh, maybe we'll, we'll schedule a time for you to come back to talk more about some of these other issues, such as maybe we could get into uh, poverty, into climate change, yeah. uh, the economy, and, and so on uh, at another time. But before we go, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit more about how we can learn about the Cornwall Alliance and uh, sure. any specific books, works of yours uh, that you'd like to yeah. point us towards where we can find them? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, our website, cornwallalliance.org, has hundreds of articles and a large number of, of major papers on it that, uh, that uh, people can read for free. Uh, we do have an online store where we offer a variety of books and DVDs that are highly educational on these things. So I would invite your, your uh, audience to go to cornwallalliance.org and particularly on the, the uh, intended topic, uh, which we ended up with in today's conversation of pro-life uh, evangelicals for Biden, uh, I would recommend that people read my small booklet called how does the creation care movement threaten the pro-life movement? And in fact, um, 
if your viewers will go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the donate button, make a donation of literally any size, doesn't matter how small. <laughs> of course, we, we'd appreciate it if they were generous, uh, but no matter how small, uh, we, will, uh, we will, if they ask for it, send them a free copy of that booklet, uh, How Does the Creation Care Movement Threaten the Pro-Life Movement? Uh, and 100% of their gift will be tax deductible. So they can do that. Um, uh, frankly, also, if instead they would like to see my book on social justice, social justice versus biblical justice, they can ask for that. All they have to do is click on donate at cornwallalliance.org, fill out the donation, and in the comments field, write either social justice, asking for social justice versus biblical justice, or write... Uh, Pro-life. If they just simply write pro-life, we'll know what they want is the booklet, How Does the Creation Care Movement Threaten the Pro-Life Movement? We'll send it to them totally free. Great. Well, I appreciate that offer. Uh, I'll make sure that we have those resources, including the website uh, and any other resources mentioned in this episode included in our show notes so that people will be able to go and access those and support the work that you guys do. I really appreciate the work of the Cornwall Alliance, everything that y'all are doing. I appreciate your work and I really appreciate your time spending with us here today. Like I said, I hope we'll be able to do it again one day, but uh, Dr. Beisner, just wanna thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you, Aaron. I've enjoyed being on with you and I do hope